The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. Victoria Moran here. So happy to be speaking with you. I hope your day is going precisely as you would like it. I've had a lovely day here in New York City. I actually go out, got to go out for a really fun lunch. My friend Janae Claiborne, you remember her. She was on the show a couple of years ago, the day we had Joe Cross on. You remember that one. Um, she started a new project. She and a partner, they're, they're doing something called So Buddhist. Buddhalicious.com. So it's like Buddha and delicious put together, Buddhalicious. So they're helping people to do Buddha bowls so that all these people that say, well, gosh, you know, I'd eat this way, but I don't know what to eat. And I come home from work and I'm hungry and I'm tired, won't have that excuse anymore. So we got to try out some of the fun Buddha bowls. And I had to leave early to get back to do the show. And on the way out, Janae said to me, oh, who are you having on today? And I said, well, Matthew Kenny. And she literally did a double take. And I thought, wait a minute, did I just say Beyonce? No, Matthew Kenny, which in the world of plant-based eating is sort of like saying Beyonce. Matthew Kenny is the world's leading plant-based chef. He is the author of tons of best-selling cookbooks. Everyday Raw was the first one I read. Uh, he latest one is Plant Food. That's clear. He's also a culinary entrepreneur specializing in this lifestyle that is dear to our hearts. He's got tons of restaurants. Well, maybe not 
tons, but several. And the latest one that I visited is right here in New York City on the Lower East Side. And I'm just going to ask him, is it double zero and company? Double O and Co. Doesn't matter. They make pizza that's so good. You know, if you have a really good pizza, you say, ooh, this is probably like how they do it in Italy. You go to Double O and Co. and you say, this pizza is so good. It is probably like how they do pizza in heaven. Welcome, Matthew Kenny. Thank you so much. Appreciate the warm introduction. Well, it's such an honor to have you because you've been such a, an inspiration for me for a, a long time. And I love your tagline. I don't know how long this has been with you, but it sure works. And that is all over online, wherever we see anything about you, there's this little line that says, crafting the future of food. What does that mean? Well, it came about, I was doing a TED Talk in 2011 and I was really struggling with it. I mean, you know, a lot of chefs are shy and not natural public speakers. So like anybody giving a TED, TEDx talk, I was really struggling with it a little bit. And, and I just started to think very deeply about what it is we're doing. I mean, I know what I'm doing on a technical level, but on a bigger scale, like what are we doing? And we're using our hands to, um, to try to redefine the way people eat. So I, I came up with this title back in 2011 that, for my talk, which was really about the work we do and, and what I felt like the biggest mission is to really change the way people eat. And we're trying to do it through creating, not, not through dictating to them or scaring them or uh, using science or facts, really trying to change the way people eat through their palates by showing them that healthy food can taste good. So there's a really deep uh, involvement with our, you know, with our hands and with our craft and with our um, skills as a chef. So that's that's where that came about, and we've stuck with it, and it's served us really well. It's just pretty easy to define that we're doing something not just for today, but trying to help people for their future food decisions. And it makes it so important. I think sometimes, particularly people who are, are deeply involved in ethical veganism or, or environmentalism, it's like, oh, it's just food. Well, it's hardly just food because it's the way we express the, the ethics and the concern for the planet. So I love it that you're crafting the future of food and doing it so deliciously. So tell us a little bit of your history. Did you always cook as a kid? Uh, well, I, I always was around food. I grew up on the coast of Maine in a small town. We, we were very involved with our food sources, and I was not vegetarian at that time. We were hunting and fishing and gardening and picking wild strawberries across the street, and we would go to the beach and dig, you know, for clams and go fiddlehead foraging. And the whole thing was very extremely seasonal. And I was deeply connected to our food sources. We had honeybees in our backyard and tapped maple trees. So I spent my childhood procuring food with my, with my family. But at the same time, I wasn't really a cook. I ate very simply. And when I moved to New York City, I decided I really wanted to own a restaurant because I felt like that's where all the action was in New York. And I just loved the idea of having a restaurant where my friends could come and I could be working at the same time. So I decided to enroll in culinary school in 1989 to understand, to better understand how a kitchen worked and what a chef had to go through. And it, and it just was something that came very natural for me. And I've been involved in that ever since. And when did plant-based enter in? Well, I, I, at the same time of becoming a chef, I, I has I had always embraced being 
very active and fit and athletic. And I got into yoga a few years after I started cooking, and that became a bigger part of my life, um, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. And, and the more I connected with the planet and the environment and so forth, the less I really cared about having any animal products in my diet. So even though my restaurants were still not vegetarian in my personal life, I was going more and more in that direction. And one day in 2002, I guess, a friend invited me to a raw food restaurant. I'd never had a raw food experience, but I was open to it. And I went there and, and it really made me realize that I could embrace both my passions, my passion for health and wellness and the environment and my passion for the culinary arts and bring them together and I, you know, it was really just at that moment when I decided it, it was feasible and it was possible that I changed everything that was about 14 years ago. What an interesting story. So you wrote lots of raw food cookbooks. And as an author myself, I know that every time you write something, people think it's the only thing you'll ever do for the rest of your life. So were you 100% raw at some point in your life? And how has that kind of changed and shifted? When I first got into raw food, I was 100% raw for two years. And when I say 100%, I mean everything, um, you know, no, nothing, no almonds that were roasted. And, and I felt great. It was really good to reset my body. I probably didn't need to do it for two years. And eventually that I let up on because I missed certain things like sweet potatoes and other things that I thought were better cooked than raw. And also because I spend a lot of time in colder climates and different climates and traveling. And I eventually, you know, raw food became the framework for my diet and how I live and even our company, how we operate, because unprocessed natural foods are really, that's what's most important to me. And we wanted to reach a broader audience and be able to experiment. And we realized there are different foods for different, you know, different foods for different moods and different climates. And so we started to evolve a little. Um, our latest restaurant is, is uh, the plant food and wine in Miami, and that is an all raw food restaurant. Uh, there may be like a little bit of quinoa or one dish with legumes, but pretty much out of fifty dishes on the menu, it's it's all raw, and that's that is our newest and most upscale project. So my passion is raw food. I love it. I happen to love pizza, which I guess we'll talk about. But um, raw food is by far my number one passion. I think it's the best. It's colorful. It's fun for a chef to make. And it's really a, a great way to introduce people to healthy food because it's not ambiguous. It's really clear that this is food in its most natural state. Well, that's beautifully put. And how right that you've opened a raw food restaurant in Miami. If I lived in Miami, I would eat raw food all year round. I live in New York. I eat raw food in July and August and the first part of September. <laughs> <laughs> and there's... Um, the seasons really um, get in there. I think especially for somebody who's kind of thin, um, the the warm warm weather really makes me want to be more raw. So you mentioned something about chefs usually being kind of shy, and yet this phenomenon of the celebrity chef, and you certainly are one of those, is a great big deal today. So did you ever have any idea starting out that it would lead to this? And what do you see has brought about this difference in our culture where a chef can be elevated to movie star status? 
Well, I was just at the James Beard Awards in Chicago yesterday, where the awards were Monday night, and some of the biggest chefs in America were there. And the awards were beautifully orchestrated by the James Beard Foundation, and it really talked about this very subject. They began the awards this year with a tribute to some of the early pioneers on television, um, the Galloping Gourmet and Julia Child and Jacques Pepin. And they were really there to not be celebrities, but to help us learn how to cook, um, teach things that they'd learned in Europe or from travel. And when I got into being a chef in the late 80s, there was no food network at that time. So the idea of celebrity chef, I don't even know if the term really existed um, then. There were some couple famous chefs. Wolfgang Puck was well known and there were a couple others, but it wasn't a phenomenon like it is now. I think the Food Network had a lot to do with it. I don't necessarily watch their shows because they subscribe to a different type of cuisine than what I believe in, but it did do so much to elevate and connect chefs with the consumers and also make people more aware of how much, you know, how many food choices they have and how much abundance there is. And so I would say it really came about in the in the 90s. That's when it really started to fly. And these days it's just, you know, really a, a phenomenon it's taken off the reality yeah. is i think chefs deserve it not because they're celebrities and not because they need to be famous or for, for their egos but just because it's such a hard job chefs work so hard and um you know it's not always the most rewarding business from a financial perspective for a lot of chefs they work hard and long hours restaurant business is difficult so i think it's great that people are recognizing them for all the work that they do well, that's really, I think anybody that works in a restaurant ought to be recognized and that anybody who ever wants to eat in a restaurant should have to work in one for a month. Just so that <laughs> you, you come to understand that there is so much to it. And I think that is one of the benefits of the food networks and the cooking channels and all that. You know, you do see some of the pressure that goes on there. So it's interesting that you talked about how, how the rise of the celebrity chef was pretty much in the 90s. And I'm thinking the rise of veganism was really in the 90s with Diet for a New America. And then in the 2000s, it's just exploded. So what do you see in, in, in this movement? How has it evolved in the past five years? And what do you see for the five coming up? Well, it's it's evolved Tremendously, I, I would say you're right. In the in the '90s and even early 2000s, it really became trendy. Um, I think certain people, certain factions of the public, started to believe that it was just that a trend, and it would fall back. And I'd say it stayed level for a few years. And now, in the last maybe year and a half or two years, it's really just become you know the norm. And and that's kind of what I mean about the future of food. I think, you know, it, there's going to be a complete reversal. Whereas you go to most restaurants today and there are 12 entrees and 11 of them have an animal product in them. I do believe in 15 years or even less, it will be the opposite. The majority of menus will be plant-based. And there may be, it doesn't mean every restaurant will be vegetarian, but even non-vegetarian restaurants will be dominated by vegetables. All the best chefs in the world are doing that now, whether they're vegetarian or not like Ranieri Redzepe at Noma in Copenhagen. Um, I did a 21-course menu there, and I think 18 of them were vegetarian. Um, so I was able to enjoy almost everything. And it's you're seeing that with chefs from all over the world. So I think, you know, John George von Gerichten's opening a vegan or vegetarian restaurant in New York this summer. And that's really what I think 
the biggest shift will be not the rise of raw food or vegan restaurants, but the mainstream of adopting this way of eating in their own way. Yes. So tell us, talk to us about inspiration. What inspires you the most? Um, it's not always just food. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build a company that does a lot of things we, we obviously serve food and we, but we're really about education. Um, for the most part, and also wellness and movement. We have a wellness division, so we're doing a yoga and movement um, sort of travel experience business in Asia. And we have a lot of different things going on. So for me, I'm inspired by, you know, nature, first of all, always, and seasonality. Uh, you know, so in terms of our product mix, it's very basic things, just th- how things make you feel the seasonality and the nature. And then at a higher level in terms of the decisions we make as a company, I'm inspired by fashion and art and even music. I just try to look at cultural shifts and things that have worked and that resonate with people and incorporate that into our, into our brand, into our operations. That term cultural creative comes to mind. I'm just seeing you as this incredible Renaissance person, just creating in every kind of way. Now, you you also have a culinary program. What's that about? Well, it's a big part of our company. We have five culinary schools. We have um, one in Venice, one in Miami, one on the coast of Maine, which runs in the summer. And we have programs, two programs in Thailand. And we have an online school. So we've graduated about 4,000 students, all in different courses that we offer, mostly raw food, but we also teach plant-based cooking, um, dessert courses, plant-based nutrition and sports nutrition, and even even plant-based food photography. So it's, uh, it's a big part because I you know, deeply believe that the shift will come about through the, the availability of incredible plant-based offerings, whether it's in restaurants or cookbooks or products on the shelves. My company can't feed the whole world, and the only way to reach the whole world is to to give empower others to go out and do the same thing we do. So that's why we started our school, and that was seven years ago. And now I think we're at close to 4,000 graduates from pretty much every country in the world. Oh, don't you love it? I mean, I have a, a small program here that trains vegan lifestyle coaches. So we're we're tiny, and we have now... I think it's 200 and some graduates from 14 countries. And I honestly feel that if my daughter never has children, which maybe she won't, I already have more than 200 grandchildren all over the world. And it's just the coolest thing. Oh, that's (laughs) exciting. I'd love to learn more about it. Well, we'll talk sometime. So as our time draws to a close, we, we do need to cycle back around to where we began. And that is in the land of pizza. First, how do we say the name of this restaurant? Double Zero and Co. Okay, um, and tell us about Double Zero. Well, Double Zero, first of all, it, it refers to the finely ground organic Italian uh, flour that we use for our pizza. We have a wood-burning oven that runs at about 700 degrees. Um, a friend of mine owned a restaurant in East Village, and his lease was expiring. He was going to renew it, but he didn't want to keep the same concept, and he called me. And I had this concept in the back of my head for the last five years. So I I suggested it to him, and he was a little scared about doing vegan, but we, we did it, and it opened. And it's, plant, it's, it's an entirely plant-based vegan uh, restaurant, small plates, plant-based pizzas, a um, few raw desserts, and organic and biodynamic wine. 
and it's done. It's been full since the day it opened. I'm really thankful for it. Well, it, it's wonderful. My husband and I just absolutely love it. And in all honesty, I would go there for the salad. But being an equal opportunity vegan, of course, I have the fabulous pizzas, too. <laughs> if they force you, right? But, yeah, it, and now, of course, now I want to go to Miami. Gosh, Miami's not so far. So, listeners, you can find out more at MatthewKennyCuisine.com. We will put that and some of Matthew's social media up on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net and also links to some of his many wonderful cookbooks. Matthew, final word? Well, I just really want to thank um, thank you and everybody in this, in this field who's doing so much to uh, share the, the benefits and all the positive things happening with the world. So um, that, that's really it. You know, I think it's a great time for all of us and for um, the people who work with us because we're we're all getting healthier. It's a wonderful, wonderful time to be eating plants. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for all you do. And, you know, people may have Beyonce-type double takes when they hear your name, but just from meeting you a couple of times and talking to you today, you're just the nicest guy there is. So just, you know, keep being a rock star. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, bringing me on, and I can't wait to see you in New York again. <laughs> Thanks so much. All the best. And everybody else, stay with us through the break. We're going to be doing something I have wanted to do for the longest time, but I needed to find the perfect person. You all have heard about the abolitionist movement within veganism, within animal rights. We are going to be speaking with Sarah Woodcock of the Advocacy of Veganism Society, and she's just going to tell us all about that. Stay with us. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. 
Are you ready for deeper spiritual breakthroughs? Have you wondered how to apply spiritual principles to your everyday life in practical ways? Do you feel your soul is calling you to deeper purposes? Join Reverend Galen McDowell live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Central for Truth Transforms, a discussion on how God within you, as you, is the power to transform your life. If you really believe that consciousness determines your experiences and that you are an individualized expression of God, join us as we help awaken and transform the consciousness of humanity. We will discuss, through lecture, live interviews and call-in questions, spiritual healing, prayer, prosperity, forgiveness, new thought views about eternal life, and much more. The world is waiting for your truth transformation, only on Unity Online Radio. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, my favorite people in the whole world, the people who listen to the Main Street Vegan Show. I also invite you to check out the blog at MainStreetVegan.net. This week, it's about Ayurveda, a wonderful healing tradition of England, of, of India, excuse me. I learned about it in England, so there you go. Um, it's usually lacto-vegetarian, but I do it as a vegan. And there's a blog post about uh, vegan Ayurveda this week if you want to go over to Main Street vegan.net and check that out and some of the other stuff that we have going on over there. But right now, I want to introduce you to someone that I have looked forward to having on this show for several months now. Some of you who listen regularly may recall that last fall, I was going through a kind of hard time. I had come under attack uh, by certain factions of the abolitionist vegan movement because I'd written an endorsement quote for a book about cutting back but not fully eliminating the consumption of animal products. And in the midst of some of these scathing insults and accusations that were coming at me online, a very sincere young woman contacted me and she said, I believe you were really wrong. To endorse that book, and I'm happy to tell you why if you want to listen. But I don't believe that you deserve the awful treatment you're getting. And you can't imagine, unless you've ever been in a situation like that, it was like the sun coming up on on the darkest, darkest period. And I was so impressed that without compromising her own values one iota, she was able to reach out to me with compassion, which I really think is the essence of veganism anyway. And so I knew immediately that I wanted this person, Sarah Woodcock, to come on the Main Street Vegan Show and share with us the ideology and, and the goals of abolitionist vegans. Now, obviously, a little caveat here, Sarah cannot speak for everybody who holds this view. I mean, I think we've learned with these political primaries we have all been enduring in the United States, people listening from other countries, you've been so lucky. 
<laughs> not to be in on all of this that's been going on here for a few months. But anyway, I think when you just watch something like that and you see all the differences among people who supposedly share a lot of, of beliefs. You know that if you ask a Democrat or a Republican, okay, what do you guys stand for? You're going to get an answer that somebody else would say, well, no, we don't. And yet, everything that I know and read about Sarah tells me that if anybody can speak for this point of view, she's the one, she's well-versed in the philosophy but interestingly enough, she herself may be moving away, at least in some degree, from use of that term abolitionist. We'll find out why. From Sarah, she is the founder and volunteer executive director of the Advocacy of Veganism Society. That's TAVS. You can find T-A-V-S all over the Internet. She is an adopted Korean-American vegan who lives in Minneapolis with her husband, and adopted non-human animals. Welcome, Sarah Woodcock. Thank you so much, Victoria. That was a really sweet and warm welcome, and I'm excited to be here with you. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for just being a really great person. (laughs) You know, there are a lot of really great people, but we don't necessarily need to find out how nice people are until Mm. sometimes we're in trouble. And then Mm. when somebody um, is above and beyond the call, it it really means a lot. So let's start with a little bit of your history. You are a nice Korean-American girl. What on earth ever got you vegan? Uh, Well, it was back in um, late 2011 that I, to make a, you know, we all have a story, uh, to make a long story short, um, I encountered, um, I was purchasing eggs at a store and the normal co-op that I go to where I would get my, quote, cage-free eggs uh, was closed that day. So I ended up at a, at a large store and they actually had a sign on the door that said that they're no longer carrying eggs from a particular farm and um, the whole refrigerated case was empty. There were no eggs there. So um, that got me looking into the sign had said that they had uncovered uh, abuse at a local farm. And so that made me just stop in my tracks as a non-vegan and go, what do you mean abuse? What kind of abuse could there be? And um, come a long way since then and, uh, you know, look at the term abuse even now very differently than I used to. But it did uh, get me to look into the realities of using animals and um, it it got me to move uh, to eventually go vegan. Now, and that brings me to my next question, and actually the first question you sent me. Listeners, we always uh, ask our guests to provide some sample questions just so that I don't go off on some kind of tangent just asking things that interest me that the guest isn't passionate about. But I was really fascinated by your first question because you know we're a vegan show and a lot of our listeners are vegan. But your first question is, what is veganism? So I have a feeling you have a very interesting definition of veganism. Tell us what that is. So um, thank you. I'm very passionate about the definition of veganism itself because it's the foundation um, of our movement. And so I explain it in two different ways. The first is that as a general basis, I use Donald Watson and Dorothy Morgan's definition um, from the Vegan Society. And uh, 
that can be found online if you search vegan society, you know, vegan definition. Um, so I go by that. But the way I explain it is that veganism is an ethical position about not exploiting animals and then a corresponding way of living. So first and foremost, it's an ethical position um, for someone to say, I am vegan. When I hear that, I think this person ought to be someone that takes the ethical position against using animals as resources. So there's a lot of misconceptions nowadays that veganism is a diet or that someone could, quote, go vegan for personal health reasons or because they want to make less of an environmental impact. What I would say in those cases is that typically we're talking about actually a plant-based diet, um, which is great. If people move to a plant-based diet because they want to improve their health or because they want to have less of an environmental impact, all for the better. Great. Especially because it even makes them more open to the ethical position of veganism. Um, so what I would say is that those people have adopted a plant-based diet. Have they gone vegan? No, not necessarily. They might not understand why if a circus comes to town, why a vegan wouldn't attend that. They might not, let's just say on a mythical ballot where do animals deserve the right not to be used as resources? Who knows what they would vote, right? Because maybe they still have speciesism there that's not examined. So I think it's important to remember when we say vegan or veganism, we're first and foremost talking about the ethical position that it represents. That's a beautiful definition. I, I love how you talked about it's an ethical position and a corresponding way of living. That's right. Because I, I think many ethical positions call for a corresponding way of living. I think about people who adopt most uh, religions. There's also, okay, you're not just believing, but you're also not killing and stealing and, you know, yes. sleeping with your best friend's wife or, you know, yes. <laughs> things like that. So uh, it's, the morality not, first. it's not a new idea that the ethical position has a corresponding way of living. But I think with veganism, most people just jump right to the way of living. Exactly. Exactly. And that very good point. And I think that that's going we're going to connect to that later on as well. Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, I said that we would talk about this word abolitionist, and you, your organization used to have that word in its name, yes. and now it doesn't. We're now looking at the Advocacy of Veganism Society. So what caused you to make that shift? Yeah, so in my, in my organization, we have, we have what's called the TAVS Tenets, it's a set of tenets or principles that we believe in. So it's taking the mission statement and it's expanding it to show um, a variety of, of positions that we take on everything from um, veganism being the moral minimum, both of what as individuals we should adopt as well as what we should adopt in our advocacy. Because if we believe it's right for ourselves, then we also believe correspondingly that it's the right position to advocate. Um, and then in addition, we have, we have details about how we take a pro-intersectional approach, meaning that we don't view speciesism as in a vacuum. We view it as one of many systems of oppression. So we have speciesism. We also have systems of oppression that oppress various different groups of humans who get marginalized in our society. So we have oppression based on race. We would call that racism. We have oppression based on sex. We would call that sexism. We have oppression based on abilities, both both physical and non-physical abilities. We call, call that ableism. So 
what we do in TAVS is we take a pro-intersectional approach. And as I was learning, because, you know, learning and growing and, and finding out how we can be the most effective as vegan advocates, um, it causes us to just, it causes me, especially in a position of wanting to to have TAVS be as effective as possible, to be continually learning in my own life and then applying what I can in TAVS. Well, what I learned is that the abolitionist movement in the United States especially has, it's very closely tied, if not inextricably tied, with the abolition of slavery movement. And in wanting to respect black vegans and their journey with that you know, horrific time period that some would argue today actually has not ended, that slavery has has changed forms. There's some black scholars that will argue as such. Um, it became this thing of I became increasingly uncomfortable with using the term abolitionist in my vegan advocacy, not only because of efficacy of, you know, wanting the message to be able to reach all different listeners, um, all different potential um, open people in, in the audience of non-vegans, but also wanting to um, be respectful and wanting to be uh, respectful and also just um, having a sense of honor towards these other movements that have been around for some of them hundreds of years. And I, I came to the point where, for a variety of reasons, um, the, the appropriate not wanting to appropriate the term abolitionist from other groups came up first and foremost, as well as there being some misconceptions and also some some true perceptions about the abolitionist, quote, movement, vegan movement, that I wanted to disassociate from. So there were a variety of reasons also switching to the term advocacy of veganism. It put the word veganism right in the title of our organization's name. And as you know, I'm very passionate about the term. That became appropriate. And also, advocacy instead of abolitionist became very focused on building instead of destroying. So it was a multi-pronged reasoning. Um, so that's why I came to that decision. Mm, I, I like that. I love the word vegan. And I find it really funny that it seems to me that the only people who don't like it are vegans. <laughs> that other people out in the world, you know, they hear about it. And and they're either interested, fascinated, admiring, or they're not interested and they think we're a little crazy, but they know what it is and they're fine with the word. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, it's some of our own who I, I think um, want to go with something different. I loved, I had uh, James McWilliams on the show a few years ago, um, the professor from uh, down in Texas who wrote Just Food. He has a new book out. I'll have to have him back. But anyway, he said, vegan is a very hopeful term. And I love mm-hmm. that because what promise there is in a vegan world. So we're certainly on the page with that. Now, since yes. you brought up slavery, um, I wanted to ask you something and that connection. I was at a, a film last week. It was called Sold. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a feature film, not a documentary, but um, based on a true story of a little girl who was sold into the sex trade um, out of Nepal and into India. But I learned in the um, Q&A that followed that that's just the tip of the iceberg. They estimate five and a half million children and others sold as sex slaves, but a total of 35 to 50 million 
children and older people in labor slavery around the world. So that's very much something that goes on. And I thought, now this is really interesting in terms of animal rights. Obviously, the numbers of animals are much higher in the billions. And yet both of these issues for the people who have really dedicated their lives to them seem at this point close to insurmountable in the lifetime of anybody that's that's living. And one of the gentlemen who spoke there told this harrowing story of how he and others, along with the police and the government officials, figured out how to get into this place where 22 child slaves were being held. And when they got there, there were three very young children. And they had to make the decision, do we take the three and then tip the traffickers off to the fact that we know about them, or do we wait and go back and try to get all 22? And they had to make this harrowing Sophie's Choice kind of decision that, yes, they would go ahead and take the three. And that reminded me of farm sanctuaries and saving one or two or 500, whatever it is, animals here and there, barely a drop in the bucket in terms of the system might make no difference whatsoever, but in terms of that animal, makes all the difference in the world. Now, I know some abolitionist vegans say, oh, farm sanctuaries are just a waste of money, don't support them, bad idea. Where do you come down on that? Mm, I I think I support rescuing and um, sanctuaries very much. Uh, it It matters everything to that individual animal who gets rescued. I think that the rescue and the sanctuary of that being definitely needs to be paired with a vegan message. So I would, I would um, think that a sanctuary is not being as effective as possible if, let's say, they're rescuing animals but then turning around and not upholding a full vegan message when they do advocacy, if they do engage in advocacy. I think that um, I, I, I'm not sure – that actually might be a misconception because I'm not sure that I've ever met or known of a, quote, abolitionist vegan who doesn't support farm sanctuaries in general, in general or sanctuaries in general, where I think I've heard criticisms related to sanctuaries are on the corresponding advocacy that they do because typically – and it's not exclusively, but typically – they, in in order to bridge the gap from veganism to speciesism, they they may find that they have to make compromises on the message. So I I believe that that is what is getting criticized is the the compromising on the message. But as far as rescuing, um, absolutely, I support it. It it. I support legal rescue. I think there's always plenty of ones to rescue legally, and we're going to be able to do a lot more with advocates who aren't in jail. Um, so I, I do support it, and I think it's wonderful. And I also think that not only does it make a difference for that individual animal, but if the sanctuary happens to be open to the public, it's just life-changing. And I, you know, I remember my first experiences at a sanctuary. When you get to know these individual animals, it not only affects the way that you view non-humans, but it hopefully also affects the way that you go into your advocacy and that you remember that, hey, I can't drop below veganism because 
you know, um, this animal that I actually met in person would have been one of the victims of my of my compromised advocacy. Mm, yes, mm-hmm. right, right now as as we speak, and for people listening to the podcast in I don't know twenty thirty two. It's May the 4th, 2016, and something that's been in the news, certainly online a lot lately, um, is the Cafe Gratitude scandal, and that the owners of of these just lovely vegan restaurants, uh, mostly in, in California, have decided to not just go back to eating some meat after 40 years, but also butchering um, some cows for their own use. I don't, I don't know if they've sold it or what, but, but people are really upset about that. And I, I just, in reading some of these posts, it's also been noted, but you know, it's a real problem for, for veganism that something like 80% of the people who try it don't stay with it. So why is that? And what can we do to fix it? Um, as far as that, that Cafe Grat- Gratitude topic goes, I'm not super familiar with it, although I have seen quite a bit of topics on it on social media. I think that the the crux of the issue, which I think would be valid, is if there was deception involved, where if the people did present themselves as vegans, not not just as the owners of a plant-based restaurant that caters to vegans, uh, that, that would certainly be problematic if there was deception there. And I think from what I've read that there was. As far as people who um, go vegan, quote-unquote, but then don't stick with it, some of the things that I ask when I see statistics like that is I ask, did they really go vegan in the first place? Did they really make the connection to the ethical position? Or did they, for different motivations possibly, such as health or environmental or even animals without the full picture, um, attempt to adopt a plant-based diet and not and not be able to stick with it? I think that let's just say for the purposes of conversation that they were all people who had actually gone vegan and not stuck with it. Uh, I think there's studies and I would recommend one of my friends, her name is Corey Lee Ren, her website, CoreyLeeRen.com and also her other one, VeganFeministNetwork.com has a variety of articles and blog posts on it. And it will go into the studies around how there's social support needed and how social support in your community is so important to staying vegan, uh, motivated by animals. So I'd recommend checking out those sites for more information on the science behind that. And hopefully we can take that science and use it to inform our advocacy because, you know, I would say since I've learned about the importance of social support being to people staying vegan, that I've become very um, interested in What's happening on the community level and how can we support people in staying vegan and staying strong? Because right now we are such a small percentage of the population and different people have different levels of strength and comfort with taking this ethical position that's, you know, so uncommon and taking it into their lives. That can be very challenging. So the more support we can provide in that area, the better. Here, here. <laughs> 
Now, there is a criticism levied uh, against this approach that I have not stopped calling abolitionists. So I apologize for using a word that maybe I <laughs> no shouldn't worries. be using. Uh, uh, but I do, I do want the listeners to understand what we're talking about. Yes, that yes. There's criticism that this is a utopian vision. Like anybody who goes genuinely vegan, who stays vegan, who puts up with some of the difficulties. I mean, I feel that now for me, having done this for so long and living in New York City, I mean, there is very little even inconvenience. I mean, it's almost like mm-hmm. I kind of wish there was more inconvenience just so I could be saying to the animals, see, I really do care. It's <laughs> way easy now. But I do have to say that, that back in the early 1980s, raising a child this way, having to take her to preschool and being told she didn't have all the food groups, taking her to see an acupuncturist who, when he burned her with moxie, said to her not to me, if you weren't on this crazy diet, you wouldn't have bronchitis, things like that. You know, it's been sometimes a little bit difficult. And the criticism is that for the abolitionist view that we're going to have this vegan world and it's all going to be perfect and everybody is going to understand about animals the way we understand about animals and let's not support people who are trying to do it in incremental stages or take small steps or, and here's the big topic, you know, make the cages bigger for those who are in the system right now, that, that we're trading the lives of actual living animals, living suffering animals for some utopia that may come someday. How do you answer that? Yeah, very good question. So the first thing is the idea that the approach is uh, utopian. So I think what it comes down to is that no one that I have ever met or encountered is under the impression that the world is going to go vegan overnight, right? That's a common kind of trope that's used is that against uh, advocating, quote, abolition, is that the, the whole world's not going to go vegan overnight. You're not even making sense. You're not even in the real world. You know, come to the real world, do advocacy with me kind of a thing. Um, we, I don't think anyone's under the impression that the whole world's going to go vegan overnight. I think what it comes down to is that the big question is, what are we going to promote, both informed by moral and ethical considerations, as well as practical and strategic reasons, what are we going to promote? And the, quote, abolitionist answer to that is it should always be veganism. It should never be less than veganism. Um, And so that's where you'll see the criticism of baby steps, meatless Monday, vegetarianism, different, quote, gateway positions. Now, where this often gets confused is that people say, abolitionists hate or dislike or are critical of people who take do meatless monday non-vegans who are misled and do meatless monday or do a reduction or do go vegetarian first that the abolitionists are critical of them i think that's a big misconception i think the criticism is toward the advocacy of less than that not toward the people who interpret a message and then go and make that corresponding choice. So I think it's saying what's best for animals is certainly is if 
the society, if society would go vegan and quote abolitionists would then say, well, if we want that to happen, because it's so misunderstood, even in the vegan community, what veganism is, therefore, we should be consistently and very clearly coming out with, here's what veganism is, here's what it's not, and hey, we want to help and support you in going vegan. We know, we believe you're a good person at heart, and we want to help you get there. So it's a very supportive non-compromising for the ant. It's kind to the animals. It's kind to the person you're talking to because you're being honest and straightforward. And where there's the critical piece that often gets misunderstood, lost in translation, is in that abolitionist quote are criticizing the actual people who are taking those steps um, or even the people that are promoting those versus criticizing the position itself. So I would certainly be as running TAS, we've only ever promoted veganism. We've never promoted less. We've had incredible success with a very small budget in doing that. We're only funded by vegans. We don't accept donations from non-vegans because we tell them, don't donate. We want you to go vegan. So I think that there's a bit of a misconception there, and I think that what it boils down to is that from both an ethical consideration, moral consideration, as well as a practical and strategic, what's going to be best is if we all funnel our information or all funnel our resources into vegan education. And Victoria, you do that. You have this book, Main Street Vegan, which is about living vegan. <laughs> so in many ways, I think that um, there's this idea that, um, you know, that it's it's utopian, it's not possible, it's it's quite possible. It's just very rare, even in our animal movement, that there's actually this promotion of veganism and nothing less. And that's what Tavs, from day one, has endeavored to do, was to go into the community, go into the world, only be funded by vegans, and see if we can do this. And, you know, we're small, and a lot of vegans, I think, don't understand the difference between an organization that only promotes veganism and nothing less versus one that might promote a variety of different positions and then therefore be able to appeal to you and accept donations from a variety of different uh, people where they're at. But as far as what we're endeavoring to do with the TAVS project, TAVS organization, is we're endeavoring to go into the world and can we do this? Can we promote nothing less than what we feel is ethically right? Well, that's not a new concept to me because I was brought into this by Jay and Freya Dinshaw of the American Vegan Society, which it wasn't called abolitionist. That term had not been coined, but that was absolutely what it was. Um, the phrase that Jay always liked to use about um, being vegan was that it was ethically unassailable. And it still amazes me to think that they founded that in 1960, <laughs> which was almost the 50s, which was almost the Dark Ages. And, and it's really amazing. But I, I do know, and not you, Sarah, I, I think you would be kind and understanding of of anybody but but there is absolutely no question you know and and having been you know at at the brunt of it there there are some very scathing and very hurtful attacks at vegans who are deemed to be not the right kind of vegan or or you have been okay for 31 and a half years and now you are and i was called 
things by certain people on, on certain lists, like um, murderer, rapist, child molester, because I oh. gave an endorsement to a book to help people eat fewer animal products. It wasn't, it wasn't a paleo book. It wasn't like eat more animal products. So um, it's just, it's kind of tough, you know, that people yeah. don't want to speak with each other. And like you said to me, and this is one of the reasons I love you, you said, you should not have given that endorsement and here's why. But, <laughs> you know, but I, I'm not going to assassinate your character all over the internet. So that was good. Right. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think this way until I started thinking this way. Right. So it's like, I, if I see you with books such as Main Street Vegan and you're running this vegan podcast and you're clearly talking about animal issues, it's like, I'm going to assume that you care. And I'm going to assume that if, if I introduce different ways of thinking about things to you, that potentially you'd be open to them, but you're going to be a lot more receptive to potentially hearing my viewpoint if I don't start it out with name calling. I don't think that that behavior is okay. And I have seen it and I, I, do not I do not perpetuate that with tabs. That's one thing we're certainly trying to distance ourselves from and um, do differently. Well, and I'm far- so glad that you are. And I hate to interrupt you, except I yeah, see no. that we're over time. You said oh. we go over, just like you, you were <laughs> on the JL Fields show, Easy Vegan, last week. And she loved <laughs> yeah. you as much as I love you. Oh. We'll have to do this again, Sarah. You're just I a wonderful resource to. and a wonderful person. And I'm going to put uh, the information about Tavs and um, social media information on the show notes over at MainStreetVegan.net. So check them out. Check out these other other websites that she talked about. I'll get all that and put it on the show notes, the uh, Vegan Feminist Network. And yeah. um, let's just get Can a little Can I tell you one last, um, real quick, one last in 30 quick seconds? Thing? Yes. Okay. Quick. So in response to the book and any sort of promotion of Reducitarian, a common example I like to use to explain why I wouldn't do that is this. If you were trying to get 5 million people from Minnesota to Washington State, where would you tell them to go, Victoria? West. And you'd tell them you're trying to get to Washington State. Right. So that is exactly that is exactly the quote abolitionist uh, reasoning is like instead of telling them to go to Texas, which wouldn't make sense. We're going to tell them where the destination is. We're going to provide water along the way. We're going to provide directions, support, rest spots, whatever they need. But we're never going to tell them to go to Texas. We're you have the last the word for Minnesota. <laughs> thanks, thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. We'll see all you guys next week. God bless. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. 
This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.